Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Back in the day, we deliberately named Dash Arts to be in between art forms and countries and borders, the Dash in between. And as I approach this new podcast series on identity, our hyphenated origins are at the forefront of my mind. Over the next four episodes, we're going to look at how identity across Europe shifts and changes as borders and politics change around us. And we start the series at the beginning of a turbulent century in Europe, in the borderlands of Central and Eastern Europe, with the Lithuanian-Polish poet Czeslaw Milos as our guide. We track down the academic Claire Kavanagh on the west coast of America. Claire's a literary critic and a translator, the Francis Hooper Professor in the Arts and Humanities, and Chair of the Department of Slavic Languages and Literature at Northwestern University. I would really love if it, to sort of to kick us off, really, um, Claire, if you could give us a little bit of context about who Milos was and the world and the time in which he was living? Well, his dates alone are impressive. He continued writing poetry into his ninth decade. Um, he was born in uh, 1911 in a rural village in in Lithuania, which was at that time part of the Russian Empire. Um, and he, he died in, only in 2004 um, in Krakow, Poland which many people referred to as a homecoming because he'd spent many decades in exile, first in Paris and then in California, um, but which wasn't, of course, a homecoming because the part of Lithuania that he'd grown up in had survived, as you said, a very tumultuous century and was no longer the same place. The village had been uh, bulldozed by the Soviets. Many of the inhabitants had been sent um, at the time of the Soviet takeover um, in World War II, had been sent into exile, um, many to Kazakhstan. Um, just This is just anecdotal, but I remember being on a Miłosz bus for Miłosz conferences in Lithuania in, um, in 2011, so for the centenary of his birth. And we got to the valley that he remembered from childhood, and there was nothing left. I mean, there was nothing of what he remembered left. And the bus driver said, we here call it Kazakhstan. And I kind of laughed in shock. But what he meant is so many of the inhabitants had been sent into exile in Kazakhstan that nothing remained. So the, the whole village was, the whole valley, the Isa Valley, as he calls it in his quasi-autobiographical fiction, was now really a Soviet wasteland. <laughs> Um, so even his birthplace gives us clues to the century. The the rural village he remembered, he didn't really grow up there. He grew up in motion. His grandparents lived there. He spent the times he remembers the most fondly there. His father was a civil engineer who was doing building for the Russians because they were de facto Russian citizens. Uh, and he was doing some kind of building projects at the time that the revolution broke out. His family was with him, and Miłosz learned, as he said, uh, to speak Russian from the Soviet soldiers who were quartered in the same um, boarding house that or hotel that they were in. So his life really, and, and at the age of three, he traveled with his father on the Trans-Siberian Railroad across the empire, basically. So he recollects this corner of Lithuania as his route, as his home in the world, at the same time, he was born under the sign of disruption, really. Um, he he didn't 
he stayed in California. I, yeah, I think that would have been the, the longest place. Berkeley was the place that he actually called home or home in exile the longest. I mean, I, I know there's that wonderful line that, you know, you can be in exile without leaving your house. Actually, it's what I use to explain to my students that part of the world is say there are places where you can go into exile by staying at home. What happened with him is the, the place he was born into, a rural corner of the Russian Empire, present-day Lithuania, was previously a borderland of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or as Lithuanians generally think of it, as, as a Polish empire. So Lithuanians to this day, so far as I know, still see themselves as caught between two empires, uh, Russian and Polish, with, of course, a Nazi occupation there in the middle. So he is in a place that didn't allow for easy identity. He himself compared his situation there as a member of fading Polish gentry, gentry to the Anglo-Irish um, the Poles in Lithuania were the overlords, and the peasants spoke Lithuanian or Belarusian. Uh, so he perceived himself a little bit as part of an occupying force. And, and as he describes in many points, he encountered Lithuanian resistance. Even as a child, he was aware of Lithuanian rebels striving for their own independence. Um, so he was always, he kept that sense of never being quite firmly rooted anywhere, and also as being both a victim of and complicit in empire, which is something that his Polish compatriots never completely forgave him for. Uh, the Polish national mythology is one of victimization, and remembering that they too had been conquerors in the past, had been overlords, the gentry, the upper classes in uh, the midst of other places, other countries, what are now countries at any rate, uh, who wanted their own freedom is something that doesn't register for them. Even calling it borderlands, Kresse in Poland, is considered offensive in places like Western Ukraine or Lithuania or Belarus that have since claimed their own autonomy. They're not the borderlands of another country, they're their own country. I think that's such an interesting insight, uh, Claire, particularly this idea that he was conscious of being the victim, you know, the victimizer as well as the victim, never being fully comfortable where he lived. And presumably that just that just infused all of his writing. Absolutely. Uh, the Lithuanianness he never left behind. Um, and he gradually over the years worked on uh, learning Lithuanian. He did read in Lithuanian, and I, I've been reading some of his letters where he writes to a friend about reading the Gospels in Lithuanian at bedtime. Um, so he never lost a sense of Lithuanianness, but he never allowed himself to have an unhyphenated identity, basically. He was Polish-Lithuanian or a Lithuanian poet writing in Polish. Um, later on, he added to that uh, a Californian poet. But in any case, he goes to Vilnius, that's where he does his studies in law, in fact, um, with a couple of interludes in Paris, where he's the barbarian outsider, um, instead of the, the Polish overlord, Polish faded gentry, rather. And then in the wartime, uh, oh, and let me add one other thing, in the interval between the wars, um, part of Lithuania was considered Polish territory. This is where Vilnius, Vilno, is. 
And part of it was uh, independent Lithuania. So there was a border even running through this really very small country, dividing uh, the independent Lithuania from the part of Lithuania that Poland had laid claim to. So his father was on one side, his family was on the other side. His father had to cross what was called the green border illegally uh, to see his family. So the notion of shifting hyphenate identities is crucial to his perception, to his worldview from very early on. He spends much of the war in occupied Warsaw um, even then, this sense of Poland as both victimizer and victim informs the way he deals with the Polish resistance in Warsaw. Um, he was very suspicious of, of rabid nationalism, and there were quasi-fascist groups even in interwar Poland um, and growing amounts of anti-Semitism. And he was very wary of an even underground resistance nationalism that celebrated the the glorious Polish martyrs. So he wrote in the underground, but he distanced himself quite early on from sort of the, what he considers sort of raw-raw nationalist strain in the Polish underground movement. And he even opposed the Warsaw Uprising. He sat it out where the underground, the Polish underground, the home army uh, rose up to try and take back Warsaw from the Nazis before the Soviets could move in. Did he publicly justify that decision? In his poetry, he, he justifies it. He talks about it. He, he hated the blood and guts, we'll feed ourselves to the wolves for the sake of sacred Poland kind of mentality. Um, but he also never could outlive that decision. It's the kind of thing like his working for the communist regime, although he didn't become a communist, that was never forgiven him. But he was one of the Polish intellectuals who thought the uprising was misguided, that they were getting encouragement from both the allies, from the allies, which included the Soviets at that point, and that you don't trust advice from the Soviets on, you know, their military support, that you don't trust the allies, and rightly so, the allies did not assist um, in the uprising, and the Soviets wouldn't even give American or British planes um, landing spots to to help. And he didn't like the strongly nationalist underpinnings um, of some of the, the resistance movements. So he was always, he, he called himself somewhere a born contrarian. And I think that's it. You always have to look at where he is, who he's writing to, what language he's writing in, and which side of his correspondent or which side of his audience he finds himself partly in opposition to. That's completely fascinating. The born contrarian is a fascinating idea. Do you think he had made peace with that, with that kind of hyphenated identity, this desire never to be in one place or another? I don't think he was ever at peace with it because I don't think he was ever at peace. Um, and he, he felt like he had to come to terms with it. He, it was, it was built in there. I mean, one of the things it's interesting, the return in his writing to rural Lithuania comes out really, really markedly in one specific period. He writes the Isa Valley, this quasi autobiographical memoir. It's really 
what he does in a lot of his work is is generate these kind of what if autobiographies. What if he had stayed behind in Lithuania instead of just he was dying to get out there. He felt like he was in the boonies. He wanted to get where the action was, you know, Warsaw and then Paris. He wanted to be wherever the center was and not on the periphery as a young man. So Isa Valley is whatever, like 52, 53, he called that his his exorcism um, from communism, basically. There's one poem in the 60s, that I, in 1960, when he first moves to Berkeley, he accepts a position um, teaching at, at University of California, that Lithuania becomes key to his vision of the world, essentially. It's both his past and a vision of a fully human reality. Do you have off the top of your head the title of that poem? I do, actually. The poem is one that only someone who's both a native English speaker, even American speaker, and um, someone who studied Polish would get the title of. The title in English is Far West, but that's not what the title is in Polish. The title in Polish is Kreset, Borderlands. And in it, he fuses the notion of California as a borderland and as a Native American Hispanic settled borderland. It's a fictional place he's dreaming of, right? It's an, it's an idealized fictional world in which he might place himself. It's not idealized, but it is fictionalized. It's his becoming more obsessed with Lithuania while living in California. But he also works against that nostalgia. And part of what he does, again, this is another poem written in the 70s in Berkeley um, from the Rising of the Sun. Part of what he does when he dreams of a return to origin, being a contrarian, what he's always saying is there's no such thing as pure origins. So even when he's researching documents from the period in which presumably his, his ancestors uh, were gentry, Polish gentry in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in Lithuania. The le he excavates a document from the time, and the document is a hybrid of multiple languages. It has Lithuanianisms, it has Latinisms, it has Polish, it's, it's this polyglot language. And I think what he's doing there is saying that the deeper you dig, the less pure your roots become. The, it's his way of combating the idea of pure nationalism in any form, is saying there's no such thing as a pure nation. They're all impure in different, infinitely complicated ways. I'm really interested in this in this idea, this Polish Commonwealth Empire. It chimes with me with another of the podcasts we're doing in this series about Yugoslavia and the collapse of Yugoslavia. And um, and it, to me, it feels very similar. This multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious part of the world that no longer exists, but exists for so many people in their imagination. Yeah, it, well, that's that's what it is. And what he's careful to do, sometimes he does, it does lapse into um, nostalgia or idealization. But what he's careful to do, he, he's always aware of Vilnius as what he suggests in this poem from the Rising of the Sun um, from the, the early 70s, written in Berkeley, um, is Vilnius as kind of a palimpsest, you know, because it was called the Jerusalem of the North, an enormously strong Jewish population in Vilnius. Polish, Russian, German, layer upon layer. Of course, the one population, the one language that wasn't 
represented in Vilnius was, uh, or minimally represented, was, was Lithuanian. Um, but he's really aware of that, this polyglot, multi-ethnic, multinational, and that what he calls attention to, and it's something I use in my teaching, is, is that the idea of the pure nation, in the case of Poland particularly, the ethnically, religiously homogeneous nation, comes to modern Poland courtesy of Hitler and Stalin. What had been around 1918, I think only 66% ethnically Polish was whatever, 97% by the war's end. Uh, so to cling to that myth is to cling to all sorts of dangerous ideologies and to erase huge chunks of history. Claire talked about pre-World War II Poland as a polyglot hyphenated land, one that celebrated a melting pot of different identities. I was interested in understanding more about what the Poles would have thought of Milos both before and after World War II. I reached out to a friend, Rigels Halili, who I met in Poland nearly 20 years ago. Rigels is originally Albanian. His work focuses on the culture of the Balkans and we'll hear more from him in a later episode in this series. But he's spent most of his life in Poland as an academic and by sheer wonderful coincidence is a published translator of Milos into Albanian. I asked him about the reaction of the Polish people to Milos's achievement. Everybody was bizarrely surprised when he got the Nobel Prize. Um, although people read him and they knew in Poland that, that he was a, a great poet. Uh, I love his essays. Uh, one can find the, his ideas about what does it mean to be born on the borderland? What does it mean to be part of the borderland? What does it mean to have borderland as your own, uh, as your own native realm? Of course, he wrote in Polish. And and he's part of the Polish language. But then, I, and I'm saying this as a translator because I, I did translate him into Albanian, his poetry. Um, when you translate Milos, you will find that his Polish is, diff is different from the standard Polish standard. And not because of the different grammar, but because he uses different lexico lexicographic, he, use, he uses different words. He uses his very much rooted in his local, not even fatherland or motherland, but in his local family land or, or native land, he called this rodzinna, which means in Polish being even more, more connected with the family than with, with the entire nation, so to speak, or with the state. He was never part of a, any, any state tradition. I think for those who do understand Milos, like my friends at uh, Pogranice Foundation in Krasnogruda, or other scholars who have uh, translated and tried to understand him, like Andrzej Franasek. Uh, Milos was the is the epitomization of another way of thinking about the Polishness, Polish nation, and Central Europe. He sees Central Europe as a place where identities have identities have clashed with each other, and people have died over identities. Uh, he was also very keen. To, to see how uh, one crucial element of Central European realities uh, dis disappeared after the Second World War or during the Second World War, namely the Jewish tradition. And he was also very much connected with that. Mm, one of the most, I think, one of the most uh, important poems of, uh, of the 20th century is his poem about, about the, the uprising, the Jewish uprising in 1943 in April in, uh, in Warsaw. He was there, he saw it. And, 
and um, and for him it was also important to see these elements that were there and evaporated due to the coming of the nation state imperialistic traditions or uh, due to communism or due to nationalism. So in a sense, what I told you in the beginning about the way I, I, I understand the Balkans is pretty much, is very much influenced by, by the Milos understanding of Central Europe as a place where there is communication, there was conflict, and, uh, and, and we have lost something of this intra-identity, not the identity, but intra-identity, the identity that are between the identity of borderlands or the the language of borderlands, the languages, because there is, there is a multiplicity of languages. And his his work is very multilinguistic. Uh, it is not a surprise that his best friends and and uh, and sort of uh, colleagues in in the states were Thomas Venslova and Josef Brodsky, writers like himself, being rooted very much in the respectively Lithuanian and Russian culture, but who believe that these cultures are, do not stand alone. They are interconnected with other cultures in the region. They would not have been a Lithuanian culture without the Polish component. And Milos would say there is no Polish, Polish culture without the Lithuanian or Ukrainian or Belarusian components that are also part of Polish culture. The perception of Milos today in Poland is dual because uh, for those who think about Polishness in terms of exclusivity, Milos is a traitor. It's a, it's a writer that did not understand what does it mean to be a Polish writer or to write or to see the, the Polish civilizational mission toward the Lithuanian, and Belarusian and Ukrainian neighbors. Whereas for those others who see Polishness as an inclusive identity, who see also the, the place of the Belarusian language, Ukrainian scholars and Ukrainian uh, writers and writers born in Ukraine, or Lithuanians like Milos or Konvitsky, and of course, of course, also of the Jewish uh, element, uh, as part of the Polish, say, let me put it, Polish cultural space or dialogue. If we see culture as a dialogue, we will see that there is place for everyone and everybody contributes to it. Uh, it's pretty much as the way I understand, it's pretty much the, the, the idea of, of building, as I said, an intra, an intra identity, an identity that is beyond the national, the, the borders of the national identity. For me, he's a, he's a constant uh, source of inspiration, a bit different than other scholars or other writers that do claim to be part of Central European tradition. It's a source of inspiration, a continuous source of inspiration. And he's, he will continue to be, you know, with, it's always this, this, this clash or this debate is not a new one. It has been there since 100 years or 150 years among the Polish uh, scholars or Polish writers. And it's also a typical issue also in, among the Czechs, among the Hungarians, among Serbs, among Albanians. So this is not only a Polish thing. I think it's, a, it's always this clash is going to be there between those who perceive national identities as a given that is unchanged and, and has to define one's life, or those who perceive national identity as a, a continuous um, process of building that is also prone and open to other influences, not the, the only national one, so to speak. Uh, in, especially in Central Europe and the Balkans, this is very visible. 
And I, I believe those who will remain in the end will be those who put stress on dialogue and on interconnectivity. Rigel's passionate assertion led me to the UK-based musician Katie Carr. Katie and I co-curated a live Dash event about six years ago in London, which explored the experience of the Poles and Soviet Union. I will never forget her friend Danuta Gradolzitska, a survivor of the Siberian Gulag, who arrived for our event at almost 90 years of age in the uniform that she once wore as an ambulance driver in the Women's Auxiliary in the Polish Second Corps at the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy in 1944. She was phenomenal. Katie herself shares a bifurcated identity with Milos and has drawn great creative inspiration from him and his work. The way Czesław Milos has inspired my music is, is, is very extensive because uh, for the last 10 years I've been writing a trilogy of albums inspired by the Second World War experience in Poland, which started with Pashport inspired by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement, but also my relationship and friendship with Auschwitz escapee Kazimierz Bichowski, who had escaped in the commander's car in 1942. And he not only opened the possibility for me to look at Polish history in a, in a new and refreshing way, from his own oral history and his own um, experiences during the Second World War, but also he was he was a guide through the cultural landscape of Poland and the rich diversity of the poetry and the literature that I was using to inspire me to write the songs. And I've written over 50 songs here. And Pashport was inspired by Kazik and his experiences, but also he was explaining to me that Czesław Miłosz was a great poet of Poland and... He has a writing called On Exile, and it says um, a, a loss of harmony with the surrounding space, the inability to feel at home in the world so oppressive to an expatriate, a refugee, an immigrant, paradoxically integrates him into contemporary society and makes him, if he is an artist, understood by all, even more to express the existential situation of modern man, one must live in exile of some sort. He really did understand what exile was. And he understood what it was like to to leave his homeland, and so my music has a lot of has a feeling and the trauma of loss of of country of of identity and how people had to um redefine themselves in new settings. There are two thoughts that you've said which are kind of fascinating to me about what you understand of Milos. Is you referred to him, maybe it was Kazmik who said, who said who you referred to as saying it, that he was a great poet of Poland. Um, and you also were talking about him as having, um, he had these original ideas of what, of what Poland was, which you found so meaningful. And I, and I find it very interesting, of course, because, you know, it's, it, it is sort of, he, he really had this sort of bifurcated identity, didn't he, of being both Polish and Lithuanian. It's sort of fascinating to be born out of Poland and yet to be identified as a Polish poet. Um, and I wondered if you had, might share some thoughts about that as an idea, because my sense is that might speak to you as somebody who is both Polish and not Polish. Yes, Czesław Miłosz would would have seen the trauma of the Second World War. He would have seen the 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 effects of the Final Solution for the Jewish people and for the people of Poland. And we can't forget that that three million Polish Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, as well as three million Polish Catholics. So he would have seen all of this. He would have seen 
terrible situations with the Warsaw Uprising and, and, and seeing the Polish people completely um, brutalised and, and, and thrust into the ground by the opposing giants, as he calls it, in his book, The Captive Mind. And, and, and that is something that, if you've lived through something like that, that's absolutely what you're going to put into your poetry, into your writing, and uh, there is a, there's this bitter stanza at the end of a, of his um, you who wronged, and it, it it says it all really, and then it says and you have done better with a winter dawn, a rope and a branch bowed between your weight, and it leaves little doubt to his profound and angry disillusionment of what Stalinism had become. I feel like I'm missing something, which is about your what drives you as an artist. Because I think you have a bifurcated existence here in the UK as someone who's half Polish and half British. And I wonder if that's also a link with you and Milos. Oh, that's a brilliant question. I'm fascinated with Czesław Miłosz because I think I share a lot um, it in common with his um, drive to explain through music and through my own concerts and filmic experiences the trauma of a, a nation that didn't really have an opportunity to be on the map of Europe for over 123 years. But in Poland's case, it was 1795 to 1918. But I think, for me, the, the connection with Miłosz is because I really miss Poland and I didn't grow up there and I can see Poland from a distance. And I think that's the, probably the greatest connection because he couldn't return to Poland and he, he was in exile from Poland. And the reason why I can write my music um, is from a distance because if I was involved with it in terms of being in the Second World War or being in totalitarian communist regime I probably would have been too frightened to write about it and I think that's something that artists can look into it's almost looking into um, a goldfish bowl of terror if you like and I'm trying to put the jigsaw pieces together of my own experience with Poland and my own family connections and the different emotions with that. I mean, only recently I found out that my own grandfather had escaped from Auschwitz and he was um, prisoner number 22661 and none of my family in Poland had ever told me about this. But Kazik, my biggest inspiration in Poland, said, you know, none of us can explain it. It's just... How can you explain horror and terror? But to people who have not experienced a, a totalitarian regime or have any experience of that in their own family, it's difficult to understand. And I've been trying my hardest to give honour and, and a space for those voices that couldn't be heard to do this, potentially for the next generation who may not have people who have survived that in living memory Katie's great awe of Milos and the responsibility that she feels to tell those stories made me think more about hyphenated identities and what happens when someone with a bifurcated identity becomes a symbol for their two different countries. I asked Claire about this. 
the wonderful and interesting thing about about doing a podcast on uh, on Milos at the time of marking of his anniversary has been that we've been you know in conversation with the Lithuanian Institute in London and the Polish Cultural Institute as well and they both claim him and obviously he would be delighted because it would really suit his bifurcated identity are the Poles and the Lithuanians as comfortable sharing him as he would be being shared Absolutely not. Uh, his claims to Lithuanian identity in Poland have been and continue to be, as far as I know, immensely controversial. There's a whole series of controversies connected to Miłosz. One was that he was affiliated with the Communist Party, um, that he resisted, he didn't participate in the Warsaw Uprising, um, and that he kept insisting that he was Lithuanian. Now he's kind of safer because he's dead. I hate seeing that happen, but it is what happens. It, it, it death defangs writers who, who liked stirring up hornets' nests, to mix my metaphors. It took a long time for him to be approved for being buried in sanctified Catholic uh, cemetery and to find a place for him because he wasn't a good Polak Catholic. He wasn't a good Polish Catholic. You know, send him to Lithuania. Send him to Lithuania. He's not one of us. So his identity was not embraced in Poland, and that was exactly what he was after in a way, is he constant challenges to this aggravated sense of Polish nationalism that we've seen full-blown um, in the Polish government, and particularly the Poles are setting themselves apart from the EU or challenging the EU over and over and over again. I mean, they're in conflict with the EU yet again, because they're the, the keepers of the true values, they're the Catholics, they're the, the, um, the truly moral nation. Um, they still see themselves as victims, and now they see themselves inter alia as victims of the EU. So being a prosperous European nation is against the national code, basically. And he, he fought that. And yet he won a Nobel Prize for Literature for writing in Polish, and he is one of Poland's great literary heroes. I love being an outsider myself in Poland because I kind of hear everything. I'm not, I, I'm kind of not, I know which camp I'm in. I'm in the Miłosz-Szymborska camp for sure. Um, but you see and hear all of the nasty stuff. Younger Polish poets would be attacking Miłosz for his, his communist affiliation was never forgiven him, even though it was so short-lived and ended for him tragically, um, you know, with being cut off from his family in the, in the United States, as well as being cut off from Poland, stranded in Paris for a couple of years without his family. Did you meet him? Oh, I knew him pretty well in the last years of his life. Yeah, I met him a lot. Um, he one time said, we are friends. Has your work and your research and your reading of him and his writing, has it affected the way you think of yourself? I mean, has it affected your understanding of your own identity? Tremendously, especially because, as I said, I grew up in California and the idea that California was essentially stolen from Mexico never entered my mind. That was certainly not part of the Californian heritage. It's not, I got taught California history. Um, I went to Catholic school. I had religious education. 
um, the whole system of missions there. That was one of our glories. Miwosh is the one who taught me to read California, read my own country, my own, because California is in a way like a separate country and was at one point, you know, not part of the United States, part of Mexico, then before that part of Spain. And before that, of course, there were indigenous peoples there. And now I'm going to quote imperfectly from Szymborska. Both of them are suspect of the idea that you ever own the ground under your feet. Um, she says somewhere, perhaps all fields are battlefields. Yeah, he's changed lots of stuff for me. You can never trust the ground beneath your feet. The 20th century struggle over national identities reaches far beyond Poland and Lithuania. In the same region, Ukraine was also occupied by countless different countries and empires. So I reached out to the UK-based academic Katarina Denisova, whose focus is on Ukrainian futurist artists working in the 20s. I was interested in asking her how the political upheaval impacted on the artistic output of the time. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of Ukrainian futurist scene at its peak? The, the futuristic scene as such is very mixed and complex in Ukraine. And it's difficult to say that there was like a movement of futurism in, in Ukraine at the time because artists were quite diverse in their aspirations and what they were trying to do. But also the, the period itself was so convoluted and kind of the power was changing all the time that it was we kind of needed to adjust to the reality as well, as well as pursuing their artistic um, aspirations. I think it's absolutely a brilliant introduction, Katia. Thank you so much. Just to kind of finish up this, this point that you were landing on, which was that the environment was so convoluted, that there were these changing borders, that the power was changing all the time. Is your feeling then that, that it was this environment which fed the creative process, that, that it, was the, it was the world and the ever-changing borders and the boundaries and the kind of imperial to Soviet to you know, nationalistic journeys that were going on politically at the time that in, impacted on the work that was being created? I think we need to go back a little bit. And if we're looking at the imperial structures and if we're taking, for example, Kiev at the capital of um, what was called at the time southern uh, provinces of Russian Empire, and there, was no, there was no art academy in Kiev or on any of the territory of what is today Ukraine. So artists, inevitably, if they wanted to pursue artistic education, had to go elsewhere. And um, in the beginning, it was mostly the Russian Empire, so they would go either to the academy in St. Petersburg or later on to the School of Painting, um, Sculpture and Architecture in Moscow. Or increasingly in the 19th century, as the sort of century progressed, it was um, the Western centers, um, Western European centers became more prominent. So artists would go to places like Krakow and Munich and eventually Paris to develop themselves as artists and to uh, carry on their artistic education. So that kind of already suggests that they were very flexible um, in, in terms of their movements. And I think another thing that we need to remember is that the way we approach um, identity, especially national identity these days, is much more rigid than what was happening back in the time. And I think like in the late 19th century, most of the artists who were active on the territory of Ukraine, they were quite cosmopolitan in their outlook. And so this kind of movement was quite inherent to them. And they could feel at home in Kiev, in Moscow, uh, in, in Paris. So kind of that combination of coming from somewhere and exploring the art of the, the, the country or the territory they were coming from, plus 
exposure to um, Western or Eastern influences uh, meant that there was a great interchange and mix of visual vocabulary. And one of the great examples, um, I think, is an artist, um, Alexandra Exter. She's interesting because she was born in what, like in Bielostok, which is today um, in Poland, but back at the time it was part of the Russian Empire. And um, her father was of Belarusian descent, her mother was Greek, and the family moved to Kiev when um, Alexandra was, um, I, like, I think, three years old. And then she gained her art education in Kiev in the art school, uh, Kiev Art School. In 1906, she made her first trip to Western Europe and eventually ended up in Paris, where she continued her education and where she was introduced to the likes of Picasso, Matisse, uh, Guillaume Apollina, and that, that kind of set. Uh, but before she moved to uh, Paris, she started working on um, research and development of Ukrainian decorative arts, especially embroidery. And she got very involved um, in this subject and she organized exhibitions to showcase um, the, the, the kind of embroideries from Ukraine and the artisan production from uh, Ukraine. And that kind of became part of her visual language that then got kind of reinforced or incorporated into, into her artistic system that developed as, as the result of her continued education in the West. And I think another thing that is interesting to point here is that in, in the Ukrainian case, um, what kind of in Western modernism was the search for the other or kind of for something original and indigenous in Ukraine, it was actually going back to the roots um, and going back to the national art and folk art. So that's another reason why I think that Ukrainian avant-garde wasn't as radical. That is kind of once again underlines by point that there was this bridging of generation and of the generational gap that Ukrainian art at the time, or what we call Ukrainian art today, um, looked quite ornamental and less radical when compared to um, the Western examples. And also kind of the, one of the major shifts was from, from the Russian Empire and then Ukrainian National Republic, which was an independent state to Soviet Union. It was quite a drastic one and artists had to adjust. And I think they, they had to negotiate their own identities in a way. Um, and that's another thing that we need to keep in mind when we think about them and try to apply you know, our notions of identities to them. And I think another good example here, which is quite um, loaded, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to not to use it too much, but I think Kazimir Malevich is a brilliant example here because he is another artist who has such a complex identity, or kind of he's larger than any notions of identity, really. But because he was born on the territory of what today is Ukraine, uh, but to a Polish family, and he spoke Polish as his mother tongue, uh, but he grew up in Ukrainian villages. His family moved around quite a lot, so he was exposed to the, to the Ukrainian peasant and folk art from quite an early age, and he also spoke Ukrainian language. But then, as an artist, he was shaped in the Russian Empire, and then when the Russian Empire was crumbling, he worked in Vitebsk, which is today Belarus, and then he became a subject of, of the Soviet Union and became a Soviet artist. Um, so it's kind of, where do you place him? Like, is he Polish? Is he Ukrainian? Is he Russian? Is he Soviet? It's, it's very complex, but I think that's 
the beauty of it in a way, and it's something that we should be acutely aware of when we talk about national identity in Ukraine, and we need to embrace and celebrate this complexity um, in any of our kind of narratives of what today is Ukrainian identity. It is a very complicated issue, and given that we have essentially war happening on the territory of um, Ukraine, it's Obviously, it's kind of, we need to protect ourselves and our identity and our language. But I think some of the things that are currently happening in Ukraine go in extreme opposite direction. Um, I don't think that Ukraine should be seen from the binary of Russian versus Ukrainian. Um, and I think here I could serve as an example myself. I, I, I was born in Kiev. Um, my parents' family is coming from elsewhere, as was um, kind of a common case in, in the Soviet Union. But uh, my mom was also born in Ukraine and she lived in Ukraine her whole life. And they themselves considered themselves Ukrainians, um, even though my mother tongue is Russian and I grew up um, in a very linguistically Russian environment. But I also consider myself Ukrainian, and I don't see why me being a Russian speaker, I obviously speak Ukrainian as well, and I love the language, I love the culture, I'm kind of, I want to contribute to it. But I don't see why me being a Russian speaker should be, should make me any less Ukrainian. And I think this is the kind of slippery road that Ukraine is embarking on at the moment with the some of the um, language laws that have been introduced and educational laws, because the society in Ukraine is being portrayed as this binary. Um, you're either Ukrainian or you're Russian, but it doesn't have to be that way. And you know, we cannot negate the Soviet experience. But at the same time, it's, it, we need to be so careful with how we position ourselves precisely because of the aggression from Russia and because Russia is not going anywhere and um, it, it will be there. And I think some of the work that Nikita Kadan is doing is also kind of aimed at this decommunization, but from the side that not everything that was created in the Soviet Union just because it was Soviet was bad. And we need to kind of embrace that heritage and also celebrate the artists. Were there futurists that you're looking at, these avant-garde artists, the artists that you, in the very broadest sense that you're looking at, were there some in, in Lviv? Because I'm aware that Lviv had a slight, has had a slightly different evolution. It didn't, you know, it, got, it was part of Poland during that time of the 20s in the Soviet Union. And did the artistic work evolve differently? Yes, precisely because... Um, it was a different country at the time, and also historically it was a different region, um, because after the petitions of Poland in the 18th century, that part of Ukraine ended up under the Austro-Hungarian rule. So the socio-political background was completely different, and also Austro-Hungary was much more lenient and encouraging in terms of the development of Ukrainian culture and language, because they deemed it to be a balancing force against the rising Polish nationalism. Um, so artists and culture, like intellectuals in what today is Western Ukraine and Lviv had much more freedom um, kind of in their development and in kind of expressing themselves. At the same time, um, it was a similar situation that because there were no proper art schools in Lviv, artists from the region inevitably had to move elsewhere and they mostly went to Poland. And that also obviously kind of informed um, their visual language um, and their sense of identity. But also there was such an interchange between the Polish and Ukrainian and Jewish artists because 
Lviv at the time was a combination of those three. It wasn't a uniformly Ukrainian city or Polish city or Jewish city that kind of coexisted. And it was a different background that artists in Lviv operated in. Um, and there were there was a bit of movement between Western Ukraine and uh, Central and Eastern Ukraine. For example, one of the artists that I've mentioned before, uh, Mikhail Boychuk, who created this school of monumental painting in in Ukraine and in the Soviet Ukraine, especially, he was originally from Lviv, um, and then he studied in um, Krakow and in, if I'm not mistaken, and in Paris, and then he eventually moved to Kiev, and that's where he set set up his main school that um, evolved into this kind of school of monumental painting in Soviet Ukraine. I think it's an important part of what Ukraine is today and the identity that we have today. And I want to kind of investigate these networks or their absence uh, between Western and Eastern Ukraine in the early 20th century. I mean, I really look forward, Katia, to hearing a bit more about your research. Do you have a hypothesis that the artistic work might be slightly different as a result of that environment? And if so, what, what, how might that be reflected in the actual work? I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question, if I'm honest, but I think what I'm trying to do is my <laughs> disclaimer straight away. But I think what I'm trying to do is, uh, in my research, I'm starting from the position of now and what we consider to be Ukrainian now, and then reconstructing what was happening in the late 19th and early 20th century to see kind of the roots of what came to be as Ukrainian identity today. But I think kind of one of my main kind of ideas that I'm kind of mulling over in my head at the moment is that the notion of Ukrainian is a very complex one and we need to be we cannot just say it just because Malevich at some point in his autobiography said that he was Ukrainian. We cannot just take it at its face value. It's much more complicated and complex and we need to be aware of that and embrace that and as I said before, celebrate that. I just was just listening to you talking about these artists, um, the different artists that you named, and and how many of them travelled. You know, travel was such a kind of obviously that kind of movement, partly because of the families moving different countries, and partly because of their studying, and partly because of the political upheavals that meant that people had to move. They moved a lot, and obviously because I'm sitting here still recording podcasts in my bedroom, conscious of the da- challenges for us all to travel at the moment, and 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 how I'm missing out on kind of creative development through not being able to absorb new influences. I was just wondering if that sense of travelling, that sense that Milos had of being in exile without leaving his front door um, because of the borders moving, I'm wondering, do you feel that that impacted on the work that was being created at the time? Definitely. And it kind of impacted um, from the perspective of the artistic upbringing um, and kind of that goes back to the, the point of the pursuing the, the artists who came from Ukraine had to um, eventually pursue their artistic education elsewhere, which means that they were exposed to different cultures, but also different art movements. And it was, of course, kind of stimulating. Um, it stimulated their creativity and it informed their visual language. But I think also even in the early Soviet times, the borders were not yet as shut as they became eventually. In Western Europe, for example, there were like for a number of years Soviet Union was represented at the Venice Biennale and um, Ukrainian, um, there was a, even like a separate sort of Ukrainian sub-pavilion 
within um, the Soviet pavilion. So there was still fluidity and exchange of ideas and creativity that continued to inform the art. But at the same time, I think the notion of um, Soviet art was gradually changing. And even though kind of in, in theory, kind of communism advocated um, internationalism, it, it got drastically changed in the late 20s and early 30s. And it was more kind of focused on what was happening in the country and this kind of uh, nebulous idea of um, reflecting the the life of kind of the, the, the future and the um, happy life that the, the kind of the, the Soviet state would provide for its people in in art and that was quite removed from from the rest of the world but at the same time there is also an interesting link which I'm yet to investigate properly in between what the school of monumental painting the Bolshevists were doing and the art of Italy at the time the Novecento art which was a kind of essentially quite fascist um, so. The exchange continued quite sort of late into the 20s and 30s, and that definitely informed the visual language and um, the creativity. But um, as um, Stalin kind of gained more momentum and power, that kind of a lot of those policies and that openness was curtailed. You don't by any chance have to hand any poetry by, was it called, the first, one of the early poets you mentioned, Mikhail Semko? Mikhail Semenko, yeah, who... Who you said was a bit of an anti-nationalist. He wasn't an anti-nationalist. He was anti-nationalist in the traditional sense of nationalism. He was kind of promoting the idea that um, in order for Ukraine to emerge from its provincialism that was um, the product of its being kind of under different empires for so long and uh, the fact that um, the Ukrainian culture and literature and art was not allowed to flourish under the imperial structures. His idea was that in order for, for Ukraine to kind of move away from that, um, it needed to embrace the international um, developments in, in art and culture rather than going back and looking back constantly and trying to reappropriate things from the past cannot reduce Ukraine to a very kind of Poland versus Ukraine or Russia versus Ukraine binary. It, it is much more complex and um, much more beautiful because of that. Katia's last statement is one I'm sure that Milos would agree with. Identity, whether that be of a person or a nation, can't be reduced down to simplistic statements or stereotypes. It's a complicated and sometimes messy medley of everywhere you've ever been and everyone who's ever had an impact on your life. Cheslov Milos has certainly had an impact on many lives. And as such, I wanted to end with a song from Katie from her album Passport, which was inspired by him and his writing. My huge thanks to Claire, Katie, Katya and Riggles for sharing their thoughts on Milos and the Borderlands. And in particular, thanks to Ulla Tono for inspiring this podcast. And for Jeremy for reminding me why I found so much resonance and relevance for Dash in Milos's writing. Next time on the Dash Arts podcast, we'll move forward a little in time to look at the end of Western empires and its impact on European identity. And you can subscribe to our podcast via our website or wherever you get podcasts to ensure that you don't miss it. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps stay visible and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. 
I'm Josephine Burton, and we'll be back in a fortnight with more conversations. Thank you for listening. From him, I'm going into the woods, and you think you can keep me from him, but I'm doing it for myself, but I'm a doing it more for him, and I love my little Yannick, and I'm doing it all for him, and he attacks my hair, and it's golden. And he takes my hand And I'm a dancing He says, Mawa, 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 little flower You're the one for me He says, Mawa, 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 little flower You're the one for me And he picks me up in my wedding dress And he takes me to the hall And he grabs on me so tightly And all the pins begin to fall He says it's bad, bad, bad luck To see me before the wedding day He says, mawa, 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 little flower, flower, flower I'll be back for you at the end of the day And I'm doing it all for him But I'm doing it more for me And I pledge allegiance to Poland And I pledge allegiance to him He says, mawa, 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 little flower You're the one for me He says, mawa, 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 little flower You're the one for me Did I hear the guns fire? Did I hear the guns fire? Did I hear the guns fire? Will I see him again? Did I hear the guns fire? As I run away, he says, Mawa, 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 little flower, 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 I'll be back for you at the end of the day, and I'm doing it all for him. But I'm doing it more for me. And I pledge allegiance to Poland And I pledge allegiance to him He says, Mawa, 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 little flower You're the one for me Mawa, 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 little flower You're the one for me Mawa, 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 Kiatku Ty jesteś moją dziewczyną Mawa, 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 Kiatku Ty jesteś moją dziewczyną Mały, 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 mały kwiatku, ty jesteś moją dziewczyną. Mały, 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 mały kwiatku, ty jesteś moją dziewczyną. Kochanie, mój Jan, 